Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. You'll get a special prize for turning up early um, or on time in many cases. Um, we imagine lots more people are going to join us, um, but thank you for doing so. Uh, I've ambitiously noted down 15 minutes for opening remarks. I don't have 15 minutes of remarks, although there's only 10 left on the agenda now. So we may start a little bit early uh, with our panel. Um, just a few things to note before we do start. Um, first of all, good morning and welcome. My name is Toby Webb, uh, co-founder of Sustainable Wine with my colleague Agatha, um, and also helping us out joining us today is our colleague Tom, uh, who's managing the, the tech today um, and moderating the session later. Uh, Tom's been working with us uh, on conferences, but also on the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, and the Sustainable Wine Roundtable has been something we have initiated since uh, December last year, based on conversations we've had at Sustainable Wine Conferences. And it will be a globally minded, global nonprofit, uh, which looks at three things initially in, in wine. First of all, um, can we come up with a common definition and move towards principles and criteria uh, with the ambitious notion of a global standard on the horizon? Secondly, we want to develop tools um, and um, practical ways for those in the industry to share learnings and, and have some efficiencies because there's lots of duplication going on. And thirdly, we see the Sustainable Wine Roundtable as a, uh, an advocacy platform, helping the wine industry punch above its weight in terms of the public debate on climate change um, and on other issues. And um, we've only just been formed, but we've already secured ourselves a little spot at COP26 in, in Glasgow, where we'll be hoping to, um, not on the main stage with all the politicians, I don't think we'll be sitting right next to Boris, um, thankfully, I would say, but uh, we should be able to be somewhere on the outskirts promoting the wine industry's potential and existing work on climate change, mitigation, adaptation, and its possibilities of engaging consumers and the rich and powerful on climate change. So we look forward to that. Uh, Tom, if you wouldn't mind putting in the, the URL for the round table into the chat and put the list of founding members in, that would be great. We are closing for founding members on the 3rd of July. We have 24 at the moment, um, a mix of NGOs, large uh, producers, uh, we have some logistics companies, we've got some retailers. And uh, one objective we had was to see if we could get retailers representing up to 50 million consumers to be members of the round table. Representing is possibly a, the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, and so having retailers on board seemed very important to us. So that's something we've worked hard on. And we're delighted that groups like Ahold, Delhais, um, and uh, the Wine Society are joining us along with the Monopolies. So more to follow on the round table. If you'd like to know more, contact uh, myself or Tom or sign up to the website for updates. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, the work that that will, will come from there. In the meantime, this conference will be entirely on Zoom um, and you will use the chat function um, for conversation. In some of the breakouts, what we're going to do is see if you want to come in on video to ask your questions. In the plenary sessions, I think we'll just stick to the chat function because it can take too long. We've got quite a lot of speakers and sessions to get through. We are recording this and we will release the audio files only not the video, uh, as podcasts on our podcast channel. So if you're not already signed up, um, go to your favorite podcast app and search for Sustainable Wine. Um, pretty easy to do. You should find our logo, which you can see in Tom's profile um, here on Zoom, and then you can sign up for our podcast. You can get all of the sessions we did last November. And we recently ran a conference for about 500 
Wine Executives um, our Americas Conference on the 2nd and 3rd of June, with workshops on the 1st of June with IWCA and BSI on climate change and packaging. The conference itself was also recorded along with the workshops, and that will be available as soon as our poor old audio editor can process three days worth of audio. And some of you have been in touch asking, where's my audio files? Where's my free content? Um, your free content is coming, uh, but it takes time for um, the processing to be done. Um, so as soon as we have that available, we will let you know. And that was, well, two, two days plus a full workshop day on various issues pertaining to sustainable wine in the Americas, not just North America and not just USA, but a lot of contributions from Chile and Argentina as well, which was great to see. So that will be available soon. Um, and in terms of uh, today, I think you can see who's who's here from the uh, agenda. Uh, we're going to have a few mini breaks in between sessions. Um, and then um, my colleague Tom is going to take over this afternoon after lunch, after I introduce the, 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 the session on organic versus conventional. And then we'll have some more breakouts. Um, and then we're going to have a closing discussion on certification standards, which Tom will moderate and close the conference with. So hopefully that's all pretty clear. And I think we'll get started with our, our first session now. It seemed appropriate for a viticulture conference um, to talk about um, the climate crisis and what viticulture can do to tackle it. As we know, grape growing winemaking is a tiny proportion of a global climate change at the moment, lagging far behind things like rice production, for example. Um, but um, it also has, as mentioned, this ability to communicate with consumers and everybody else in the value chain in a way that rice, I think it's fair to say, can't do in quite the same way. So um, there's lots to discuss here, and I'm delighted that we've got some excellent speakers who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves. Uh, and they are going to make a few opening remarks on the, the big picture, and then we will narrow down to a bit more of a focused discussion. So, um, Alistair, given you're on my immediate right on my Zoom, <laughs> give us your 30 seconds on who you are and what you do. Alistair. Hi, thanks, Toby. Hello, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Alistair Nesbitt. I'm CEO of a small consultancy called Vinescapes. We specialise in weather and climate risk management for viticulture and operate um, mainly in the UK at the moment, but we do have projects running overseas in China, um, France, Georgia, Germany and Italy. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me to this conference. Um, my background is in, I've got a PhD in climate change and viticulture, um, spent almost 20 years working in the viticulture and wine production sector. Um, worked with Chris Foss, who I'm pleased to see at Plumpton College, teaching and lecturing in sustainable wine production um, and helping start what has now become Sustainable Wines of Great Britain, a sustainability scheme. Um, and I'm looking forward to the discussion today and talking more about this important subject. Thanks very much, Alistair. Charles, good morning and welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself and, um, and, your, and your lovely champagne. Oh, Charles, you're on mute. Me. Yes, I'm from Champagne and I run um, the Philippona winery. I've been running it for more than 20 years now, uh, which is about when uh, climate change started hitting. Although um, the problems are not yet here. Uh, so far, global warming has been positive for Champagne. We are a cool region. We are a rainy region and a little bit 
of sun and uh, warmth has been favorable. Uh, but the problem is coming now. So we have to prepare for the future. And of course, uh, sustainability is not only about global warming. It's also about everything we do in the vineyard um, regarding the environment, uh, regarding the future of our vineyards. Um, I'm extremely conscious of the fact that um, in the terroirs where we are, there have been vines for 500 years. And I wish my great, great, great grandchildren in 500 years can still cultivate vines in the same wonderful places. Thank you, Charles. Let's hope they can. Uh, Nicole. Uh, well, we'll make sure Charles. they can. I, <laughs> hoping is not enough. Indeed. Good point. Nicole, uh, again, tell us about yourself and Chin Bleu and your lovely wines. Thank you, Toby. Nicole Rollet, I'm the principal and founder of a winery called Chin Bleu, which is way up in the <clears throat> Dentelle de Montmirail part of the Ventoux in the south of France. So uh, we're in the heart of a UNESCO biosphere reserve. And as we were saying earlier, we have um, crazy biodiversity, 1400 species, just the butterflies, all sorts of um, macro and microorganisms. And we have had from the beginning, a very conservationist approach uh, when we took over about 25 years ago. Uh, before sustainability was a hashtag that uh, was in all the fashionable wine circles. And so I guess we've, we've ended up de facto as somewhat pioneers in this area, con looking at the compare and contrast with a lot of the vineyard management uh, in our in surrounding area, because historically there have been uh, vineyards managed very, very differently in this region. And um, I guess for us, uh, we've we've ended up in the hot seat on a number of projects. It's become a bit of a wine lab where we are trying to uh, monitor and assess the impact of climate change and the things that we can do very much from the ground up, no pun intended, uh, to uh, implement the big ideas that are floating around the um, the whole climate change universe. So one of the things that we did was also uh, found the Fine Minds for Fine Wines uh, organization, which is a think tank, and, and that's become part of the Arani Global Institute for the Future of Fine Wine, and happy to report that a large percentage of those activities are now dedicated to sustainability. But with that, I guess we're trying to make a link between the big ideas and the how-to and address some of the big uh, fears that a number of winemakers have in embarking on activities in the vineyard and in the winery <clears throat> that could be useful to them and to the planet, but also potentially risky. So hopefully we can work with other wineries around the world to find those solutions. And we have a big project called our Sustainability Initiative, uh, trying to harness the power of bees to see if there's a way to use those to make better wine that is sustainable and um, uh, and also tastes more reflective of the terroir. So that's a project we could talk about. Great, thank you. Chris. Hello everybody. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm Chris Foss. I've uh, got a Bordeaux wine background, but uh, spent 30 years developing the wine department at Plumpton College. And uh, manages a commercial vineyard and offers courses in vine growing, wine making, wine business. From apprentice level to masters. 
Um, then I retired, and I'm now chairing Sustainable Wines of Great Britain. That's an initiative of uh, Wine GB, the National Association, whose aim is to secure environmental sustainability at the heart of the UK wine industry. And uh, we publish monthly bulletins on sustainability issues and have a certification scheme, which is now uh, two years old. A membership of 56 vineyards totaling 1,726 hectares, uh, 33 wineries, and support from 20 sponsors. Um, I think our sustainability scheme has some uh, important features. One is that it's uh, uh, third party audited. Secondly, it's very much focused on, on uh, carbon footprinting. And it uses a uh, self-improvement cycle as a means, rather than standards, as a means of uh, engaging the, uh, our members in sustainability. But we can talk more about that later. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, I apologise if you see me waving while I'm moderating. It's because I'm constantly being attacked by a large amount of biodiversity um, here in the far north of Latvia, where um, for three months a year, millions of species of insects suddenly appear and uh, attempt to eat you. Um, but it's worth it to sit outdoors and enjoy the conference with you all. And in fact, they do make wine here. It used to be the furthest north vineyard in the world, about 100 kilometers south of me, now superseded by, I think, the, the Norwegians. Um, but if you, think, if you think growing grapes is difficult where you are, try being at 57, 58 degrees north. Uh, tremendously challenging when the first frost can kill all your vines <laughs> if you don't bury them. Um, and just having had a winter here of minus 25 it's going to be interesting to see how, how the harvest does this year in this uh, very low production part of the world. So um, as, we, as we can tell, um, what wine production is spreading all over the place, um, but it's obviously still concentrated more in the traditional areas. Um, and those are being perhaps hit harder by climate change than, than where I am now. Um, in fact, Charles and I were just discussing that um, with regard to, to champagne before we started. So Alistair, let me start with you. If one of your clients comes to you and says, right, you know, I'm got the sustainability bug, I realized, read the science, my vineyard's probably a carbon sink, which is great, but I want with my wine brand to take a leadership role, my vineyard, my wines, to take a leadership role on tackling the climate crisis. How can I do that? What would you advise, Alistair? Thanks, e easy question, Toby, to start with. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, there's so many variables coming to play here, but, but just taking a step back, I think, um, one of the challenges that we face as a sector is that this isn't necessarily a subject that can be tackled on a producer by producer basis. I think there's a there's a big um, question mark and an argument about um, where the direction comes from for sustainability and whether that comes from the market, the individual, the sector, the regional body, or, or all of those. Um, I think. Um, what we're seeing particularly is there are pockets around the world, particularly where there are sustainability schemes that exist that are driving and leading the way forward in terms of sustainability. I think we're seeing um, really great initiatives like the one that um, I'm involved in, the Regenerative Viticulture Foundation, um, which I'm a trustee of, which has been run by Stephen Cronk, who I think is speaking later, um, to really try and uh, uncover the, the research um, and the science that would help boost sustainability in vineyards in particular. Um, I think on an individual basis in terms of um, mitigating climate change impacts, 
Um, there's a whole range of activities that can be undertaken from regenerative practices to efficiency in the vineyard to using renewable energy to mulching vines to increasing biodiversity, etc. And on that basis, there needs to be regional research and regional, re sorry, regional information to help growers take the knowledge and apply it in practice. And so I think one of the biggest areas of focus should be on education, research and upskilling and training producers how to operate in a different way, in a way that's different from the way vineyards have been run traditionally for many, many years, centuries. Um, and I think that's really where we need to start is looking now and helping the next generation of producers and growers understand what sustainability means, understand how to manage viticulture sustainably. Um, and just, just to give you, you know, an example, we, we work in China and the level of sustainability in China is below level zero um, in terms of viticulture. We work in other parts of the world where we see exemplar practices of, bit, of sustainable viticulture. Um, and what I think we need to do is take the learnings from the best case scenarios and try and impart those on the areas that have got a lot of work to do. So that's a bit of a high level answer without going into too many specifics, but I think just trying to frame this as something that's larger than just the individual producers. Sure, thank you. And yeah, well, we have time to get more specific and I think that's a great way to kick us off. Clearly that capacity building is needed. I read somewhere there's possibly a million vineyards in the world, something like that. So that's enormous amount of work to do. Three million, wow. Three million, Nicole says, wow. I didn't know it was that many. So yes, enormous amounts of work to do. Um, Charles, uh, coming, coming to you, what does leadership on climate mean to you in, in Champagne? Well, it, it means um, showing what to do. It, it means uh, creating examples. Um, it means experimenting. It means uh, making sure people can see uh, what can be done and can then uh, follow suit. Um, and that's what we've been doing at Philippona at a small scale because we're a small vineyard. Um, but I'm also part of different commissions at the level of our CIVC, our uh, interprofessional uh, body, uh, pushing for that. Uh, our own vineyard was one of the first certified, ecologically certified vineyards in Champagne. And we've now engaged into a, an organic certification. Um, not because the consumers are pushing us, uh, not because we emotionally feel about it, uh, but because we need control and we need clean uh, control. So we're looking for technical solutions that work and are clean at the same time uh, in all fields. So that's fertilization, that's uh, weeding, uh, not using herbicides, not using insecticides, I hope soon not using fungicides, et cetera. Um, in each of these fields, there are solutions that need to be uh, tested. And if the test well implemented, that's my view. Um, I'm very rationalistic. Um, I'm not a poet. Um, I believe in uh, proven solutions. Uh, some of them can be organic or are organic. Most of them are organic. Um, some of them, um, are biodynamic in a way, but they're technically biodynamic. I don't believe in the poetry or the uh, cosmic aspect of biodynamics, but I do believe in some of the solutions that uh, uh, the proponents of uh, biodynamics have proposed. 
Thank you. Um, very interesting. I, I remember talking to Monty Walden about biodynamics. I mean, he wrote a few books on it, as you may know. And Mon I think Monty said to me, half of it's science and half of it is some slightly absurd mysticism. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, half of, it, half of it is excellent. <laughs> yeah. And I'm using it. So which bits... <laughs> just, just guess what, which half I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, tell us. I mean, which bits are, are the most helpful in helping you tackle, tackle the climate challenge so far? I, what I really think... And that's a little bit philosophical, really, but 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 uh, still scientific. Um, the most difficult part of all this is um, learning not to do anything. It's le learning to control things uh, in a minimal way and uh, letting nature control itself and just keeping it within acceptable boundaries so that catastrophes don't occur. Um, we've already had that, I think, in uh, unology. Uh, my philosophy in unology is not to do anything that couldn't have been done 100 years ago. What we have today that allow us to do that and have control is um, better techniques, um, especially uh, temperature control, uh, better tools, better presses, uh, better uh, wine vessels, better containers. Uh, be them oak or stainless steel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this works. It works in a simple way, if you want to be simple. And I think we can apply the same recipes, same uh, philosophy in the vineyard. But it's fairly new in the vineyard. It's something a, a lot more recent. And we still have a lot to do to, uh, to discover what works and what doesn't work. It's also a lot more complex. Uh, growing... Um, vines, growing food, uh, growing uh, vegetables um, at large is something a lot more complex than just pressing grapes and making and letting them ferment. So it'll take some time before we have the, uh, the proper solutions and we'll always be looking for better solutions. But there's a lot of hope, I think, especially with uh, biocontrol um, in all fields. And I hope soon, uh, um, against uh, mildew, oidium, and uh, possibly botrytis, which is which is the remaining big problem for uh, viticulture, especially in the wetter areas like ours. I like the way you, you frame the, the term clean control. I've not heard anyone use it like that before. That's very interesting. But then I guess you also make the point that um, one shouldn't try and overmanage things. And perhaps that's been a problem, right? perhaps exacerbated by the idea of the what we called the green revolution, which turned out to be more of a chemical revolution in the 70s, where we thought everything had to be managed with large amounts of chemicals. And so it's, it's an interesting balance you discussed there. Nicole, uh, what are your views on this? Clearly, bees are very important. Uh, is there a connection between bees and climate change? Um, I suppose it's about making sure they're still around to pollinate. Uh, and what else does leadership mean to you? Yeah, bees, uh, from a ground-up perspective, the most important thing here before you look at any solutions is to always keep in mind that if you want to make them rolled out across significant sectors of viticulture, you have to, from the get-go, be mindful of costs and the mitigation of risks and time constraints, which are always the three major objections that people have when they're looking at solutions. So um, with that in mind, the 
the concept is twofold. Through the air, the bees would help with the pollination, which is uh, greater up to 30%, according to studies, uh, even though people say vines are self-pollinating and they don't need bees, which is um, correct only to a certain point. And you can boost your yields uh, significantly by, by uh, bringing bees into your vineyard, assuming that you're not spraying, of course. Uh, and then the second uh, advantage, uh, depending on the winemaking style that you have, is that they're very uh, effective, apparently, at propagating yeasts, and that uh, the indigenous yeast can be helpful in the winery if that's uh, part of your winemaking philosophy. Uh, the other thing is that through the soil, it's indirect, but more powerful. So if you figure that the bees uh, are essential to the cover crops, which of course are essential to moving away from monoculture and uh, having uh, great biodiversity, those cover crops, as you know, are 80 to 90% uh, cross-pollinating. And then those uh, cover crops are the ones that provide this very sophisticated housing system for microorganisms that are favorable to uh, soil health. And those microorganisms, of course, are now being credited not just with fine health, but also with the famous capacity to transmit the terroir, uh, the sense of place that's associated with fine wine. And of course, fine wine then has the advantage that it is um, going to outperform form in a number of contexts and as a result is going to be rewarded first by critics and then uh, by the marketplace and therefore there's a way to cut costs in the vineyard by not using all the chemicals and when you do, do the studies of the net cost of managing bees to using chemicals it is favorable uh, favorably in, 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 in that direction but also on the other hand to increase your uh, selling price and therefore your margins which of course is the holy grail in the wine business where margins are so elusive. So uh, that is the theory and we're working with a number of vineyards around the world that have volunteered uh, to be guinea pigs in this study. We work with um, UC Davis, with the INRAE, the uh, National Institute for uh, Research on Agriculture and Ecology in France, Claude and Nidia Bourguignon, the famous soil experts, and um, uh, University of Sussex. So um, that's, uh, that's the project as it stands so far. The European Commission is uh, looking quite closely at it as well as a potential way to wean people off of chemicals. Great, thank you. So I'm, I'm getting a, a sense, which I'll ask Chris to add to here, that for Alistair, leadership is about education and capacity building collaboration. And for, for Philip, it's about not not being overly controlling, but getting that kind of clean control of your vineyard, perhaps more precision agriculture with less interventionism. And for Unicol, it's about that sharing of research and experimentation and helping everyone understand the science behind uh, these approaches. Chris, there's definitely something to add to this on climate yeah. leadership. What would you throw into the mix? Yeah, I think the first point I'd like to make is I, I'll agree with uh, Alistair and uh, Charles that, that, that joining a group, that forming a community and working together with other people is fundamental to it. Okay, this is not a this is not an issue that one grower is going to is going to resolve by themselves. But uh, what I'd like to add is that well, if one uh, agrees that climate change is due to an increase in carbon dioxide in the in the Earth's atmosphere caused by human beings. The obvious thing seems to be to measure one's carbon footprint. And uh, 
you know, we've developed uh, at YNGB an excellent carbon footprinting measuring tool, which is free to use uh, for anybody in the world, actually. And uh, we'll give you both in the vineyard and in the winery a, uh, a reading of your carbon footprints per hectare, uh, total carbon footprint per hectare, per bottle, uh, whatever you like, really, uh, and all the factors that make it up. I mean, our, we've only had, uh, we've only been running it for a year or so, so we don't have very good statistics, but obviously uh, the highest contribution from our members to their carbon footprint is the, carb is the diesel that they burn in their, uh, in their vineyards. So, you know, that points towards strategies like reducing the, you know, the, the power consumption of tractors or going over to electric tractors, maybe, as Charles uh, and his uh, family do, use uh, animals to, uh, for, for work within the vineyard. Yeah, we do. also try and reduce the number of parcels. We're very vegan, but we use horses. Sorry? We, we do use horses, yeah. I know, that, that's why I mentioned you, yes. I've, I've seen the video, it's lovely. Um, uh, Vegan, vegans don't agree. <laughs> well, I don't, never mind. As long as you don't eat them, that's okay. Um, the, uh, yeah, so, so try and do less passes, as you, you know, so Nicole was saying, you know, re reduce the interventions, uh, multiple operations and so on. The second largest contributor of our member contribution of our members to their carbon footprints was the steel trellising posts, and uh, that's an area which you know um, could be resolved by uh, by using posts, you know, say hardwood posts and so on. Um, though I've got to say that as uh, the carbon footprint of posts is spread over ten years, uh, it's only sort of you know, this, this, this feature only, only kicks in for the first 10 years of vineyard. The other point I'd like to make is that, well, two other points, if you don't mind, um, is that it's not just about reducing carbon footprint, it's about sequestering more carbon. And, uh, you know, we certainly should encourage all growers to monitor and increase the organic matter of their soils. That's absolutely essential. We could, you know, we could be capturing a lot more carbon through that. And also, of course, you know, the areas surrounding the uh, vineyards are terribly important. You know, we've got to encourage plant growers to plant trees and to uh, manage the area surrounding their vineyards in order to capture more carbon. Because there's another aspect to this, <laughs> which is that, you know, climate change is precipitate, climate change, but not just climate change, it's also habitat destruction uh, is fueling the sixth mass, mass extinction of species on our planet. And uh, that's a very, very serious problem that uh, future generations are going to face. So we've really, really uh, got to focus on, uh, on protecting our natural resources, that's the air, the soil and the water, and on increasing the value of the natural habitats, both within and outside our vineyards, uh, in order to increase biodiversity. That's you know, absolutely fundamental. So quite a few things to do on the leadership on climate change to-do list, aren't there, really? Um, Nicola, you wanted to come in. I just uh, wanted to back up what Chris was saying, which is so essential. And I think most people on this call probably 
have a notion of this and how and the interconnectedness of everything. But just to put things a little bit in perspective, according to the OECD, agriculture contributes about 17% directly uh, to the uh, climate change problem with the, um, the GHG emissions. And uh, then an additional seven to 14% through changes in land use. And so in, in France, viticulture represents only 4% of agriculture and it's one of the most uh, uh, viticulturally intense countries. And so doing a bit of math that got me to about um, somewhere between 0.7 and 1.2% of the uh, of the situation. So really dissociating our conversation uh, on viticulture from this big, big question about uh, agriculture in general is, um, is dangerous because agriculture to my mind is the only hope for mankind. And I know that statement sounds a bit dramatic, but if we look at the fact that, um, you know, we can all bonk each, each other over the head about carbon emissions coming from wind or, you know, nuclear or, or uh, all sorts of other biomass, etc., as to which is the most efficient, the single bullet for all of us is to uh, go from this uh, chemically intensive agriculture to uh, to this non-chemically, non uh, uh, because the only difference is that all the other things one can possibly do, and it's going to be great later to talk about glass and you know all sorts of things in the winery and all of that. But at the end of the day, if you take a bird's eye view, uh, even if we all go back to donkeys instead of cars and all that stuff, the best we'll do is stop the, the damage we're doing. And agriculture is the only way that I've seen and anything I've read, and I'm sure the same has been true for all of you on your journeys, that can actually turn the clock back and take that carbon out of the atmosphere. So to Toby's earlier point, and I didn't, just didn't want it to get lost in the shuffle, um, because viticulture has an insignificant role in the big scheme of things, but a very big role in the consumer facing uh, part of agriculture, I think we have to be first and foremost a conduit to get people to the real big issue, which is to uh, really convert our politicians to understanding the, the essential role of agriculture. And I don't know that most winemakers see themselves yet as even the ones who are sustainable as responsible for a bigger message. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, there are lots of studies showing a couple of things which I think will surprise people. One is that most old growth forests are net GHG emitters. Now, that doesn't decrease their value in any way as weather regulators, water generators, biodiversity harborers, but actually um, soil will uh, sequester far more carbon than your average forest, which, which blows most people's minds because we could have grew up with save their own forest and then climate change. And we need to do that anyway, but for different reasons than perhaps some of us might have thought. And I think you make a very good point, Nicole, about the leadership opportunity in the wine industry to point out the value of soil, the value of soil carbon. And I, I spend most of my time when not in wine working on other crops in sustainable agriculture. And, and soil is all anybody's talking about, finally. Uh, and 
Yeah, there are some very optimistic studies. David Montgomery, an excellent geologist, wrote a book uh, about soil recovery recently, which is well worth reading, where he points out how quickly topsoil can be recovered. Because usually what you hear about soil is incredibly apocalyptic, frightening, and slightly nihilistic in the sense of paralysis. Like, what do we do? The the world's collapsing. The Montgomery book is excellent for making you realize, actually, small-scale solutions can be scaled drastically on on topsoil. This is the hidden half of nature. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then definitely put that in the chat for everybody. I don't think anybody on this call who has interest in these things can get away with not reading that. It's too important. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop the drop a link in. Absolutely. Alistair, you look like you wanted to, to come in here. I have lots of other questions. And there is a good one in the chat, but Alistair, I just wanted to give you the chance if you wanted to come in here on something. Thanks, Toby. No, I was just going to uh, totally agree and support what Nicole said. Um, you know, I think I think putting agriculture and viticulture in perspective, um, it, it comes back to this question of leadership and who's who's driving change. And I think viticulture has an opportunity because it has that closer relationship to the customer, the end consumer, than other forms of agriculture, commodity-based crops, for example. I think there is an opportunity to showcase what can be done in viticulture. And it comes back to my sort of earlier point about knowledge sharing and exchange and research and the ability that viticulture has to demonstrate to other types of agriculture, the potential, particularly for soil regeneration. Um, and I, I mentioned it earlier, I'll mention it again, because I think that the new um, uh, uh, Regenerative Viticulture Foundation, you know, is a good platform, a good starting platform to start to get the word out and bridge the gap between practitioners, like vineyards, um, and um, uh, policymakers, and, and try and demonstrate what can actually be done um, in a modern setting. And I think hopefully that that will then sort of filter through, as I know it is in some parts of the world already, into the broader um, agricultural sector. Um, and I think if we can translate learning from viticulture to agriculture and vice versa, we'll be on a much steeper trajectory towards achieving what we want to achieve. To achieve. Thank you. Um, there's a question here, which I'll put to you first, Chris, um, from Philip Everett Lyons, who simply says, what are the risks if he says of, I assume it means if if you remove all spraying. Now, of course, I know in, in many of the schemes, um, it's you know it's not a dogmatic approach saying everyone must be instantly organic, and it's a horses for courses approach to use a English idiom in, in many parts of the world. Uh, for, for your members, Chris, you know what are those risks? I suppose they are you know depleted harvests on occasion when disease might strike. That's the obvious one, isn't it? Tell us more. Well, the risks are unacceptable. I mean, we're uh, you know we're growing a, a European plant which is very susceptible to uh, two, well, possibly three uh, imported American diseases, powdery and downy mildew, and also very susceptible to a, a, a pandemic, if you like, which is botrytis, and uh, you know, they, it needs to be controlled now. Unless you're uh, using you know, very disease-resistant varieties. Uh, there will need to be some, uh, you know, so some so, uh, a pretty active form of plant protection. The, the question is, what do you do? I mean, obviously, the, the place to start is with cultural and mechanical and non-chemical means. I mean, you work your way up the pyramid, if you like, and uh, you know, but uh, in the UK, as in Champagne, we're dealing with uh, you know, very sensitive plants growing in a very uh, in, in an area which is very fungal, you know, there are great fungus fungal risks. Uh, 
And if we don't control powdery and downy mildew, they will destroy our crop. You know, that's, that's the end of it. What you, but there are lots of different strategies to do, to do that. I mean, what I'm interested in is going back and trying to find out exactly what the environmental risks are for all pesticides. And so, so that doesn't mean uh, necessarily you know, banning some and, and keeping others. Let's try and see. We're working with a, a French group now to uh, try and give an environmental risk quotient for every pesticide, be it organic or non-organic, uh, that's applied in vineyards and trying to do, trying to reduce, if you like, the sort of environmental risk footprint of our vineyards uh, so that we can produce with you know, less risk to the environment. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions on this, it's a, but, some, but you can't just stop all, um, all plant protection measures. Thank you. So I imagine you would sympathise with that Bordeaux, uh, with that biodynamic Bordeaux producer I met a couple of years ago, who said, "You know, our main estate with our hundred-point wine is biodynamic, um, but we've got another one just down the road that's a sort of cheaper Cru Bourgeois, ten, fifteen euro a bottle. And if I don't spray in bad times, that vineyard goes bust, and those workers become unemployed. And I don't want to spray, but sometimes I have to because I just don't have the margins not to. And I thought that was a really interesting conundrum for a producer that spent so much time and money, you know, really fostering the biodynamic approach in a higher end vineyard, but being very brutally realistic about what they had to do with something with lower margins. I imagine you'd have a bit of sympathy with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody's got to find their own way through it. And uh, really, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of measuring, of getting data and measuring what you do and evaluating it and then trying to improve on a, on a day to day basis, on a year to year basis from a vineyard point of view, uh, rather than being too dogmatic about it. Yeah, um, I'm seeing... yeah I've, I've, I've seen data generated by Cornell University that shows that, for instance, uh, you know, chemical based uh, uh, pesticides are less harmful to the environment than copper and sulfur. Uh, I mean, copper and, you know, copper and sulfur are both quite, you know, quite dangerous to the environment. And there's a broad spectrum uh, fungicides and insecticides. Whereas you know, if you can produce something that's more targeted, uh, I've got to say, you know, the carbon footprint of pesticides is relatively low. So, you know, they're, uh, they're yeah, it's, it's a lot lower than, say, fertilizers. Um, so, uh, you know, their impact on uh, climate change is not that important. The important thing is that we've got to look at the side effects and the general environmental risk of those. And uh, there's no... <sighs> There's no law that says that a synthetic product has to have a greater effect on the environment than a natural one. I mean, some natural, some naturally produced substances are extremely poisonous and dangerous, and I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't let them, I wouldn't put them in my sprayer. I mean, I hesitate to mention the G word, <laughs> glyphosate. We went down that rabbit hole uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it got very angry. Um, but I will mention it because, to your point, glyphosate's had a very interesting week. First of all, a big study came out showing um, its, its impact on soil microbiology is far worse, uh, according to that large study, than we may have realised. And then another study showing on the human health side used as directed no cancer risk. So 
you know, complex stuff and one area at least significantly understudied, which is, of course, soil microbiology. Um, Charles, I don't, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to go down the glyphosate rabbit hole, but where do you stand on, on these, uh, these comments that Chris was making? And also to your earlier point about biocontrol, I am aware that biocontrol can be organic in one country or some elements of it can be organic in one country and not in another. So what sort of... What sort of yeah, that, that's, that's only a matter of um, specifications for some certifications. So I don't think it, it matters that much. What really matters is what we do, uh, not whether we can earn a label uh, or not. Um, that's what we've been doing at Philippona for 20 years. Uh, we're not organically certified yet, even though we started before many people and uh, we've gone further and other people in many areas uh, and will continue doing so. And I'd like to add something to um, what I said before about not doing anything. Uh, global warming is not just about agriculture. Um, it's also about energy, um, the way we consume energy, the way we consume um, fossil fuels. And the solution really is not uh, producing energy in a different way. It's rather about not using that much energy, not doing anything. That's the most difficult part, uh, uh, being a little bit thrifty. If we go back to uh, our, our forebears and the traditions, uh, being prudent, being thrifty, being economical, I think, is the way forward. Um, in every field. So using natural resources. Um, I had a chat recently with Thomas DeRue at uh, Chateau Palmer, and he was telling me about the ground source heat pumps they've got in, in Palmer now, which has dramatically changed their, their energy use. So there are some pretty simple technologies out yes, there. Absolutely. absolutely, we can do that. Um, sequestering carbon, I think, is a very good solution in the soils. Um one thing we're now doing in Champagne, and I know Champagne is late uh, on that respect, is um, using cover crops that do sequester carbon and then plow them in back into the soil. That works very well. That increases the humidity of the soil. It helps us fight uh, drought. Uh, because it's organic matter, it will also uh, mineralize over time and provide uh, usable uh, fodder, usable food for the vines to grow on so that we can in turn uh, fertilize less. I mean, bring less fertilizing matter from uh, outside the vineyard. Uh, these are excellent solutions that we are already implementing and that, and that can be, um, and the use of them can be increased everywhere and it can be generalized. That, um, what we're lacking now in, in a region like Champagne is generalizing the solutions. I think we know most of the solutions, uh, or at least many of them are at hand. We just need to make people aware of them and generalize their use. And uh, setting the example like we're doing, I think is uh, one way forward. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that came clear from a lot of agriculture events we, we've run is that tilling is not a, tilling gets a pretty bad press these days, right, for soil oxidization and erosion, but there's tilling and there's tilling. I, it, it's it's not a it's it's not just one thing. You can do it at very different degrees. And I suppose what you're talking about is very careful, uh, very careful 
shallow use of it to, to, to take the cover crop into the soil rather than a, you know, perhaps some of the more vilified approaches to tilling. Um, Nicole, I know you wanted to come in, but I just wanted to clarify that point with Charles. Very good point, actually. There's, uh, it's, it's a whole art unto itself, the tilling thing, and it's definitely worth a deep dive for all winemakers who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, but uh, yes, to Charles' excellent point about water usage, and of course, just like bees, these are a little bit indirectly related to carbon, but they're so essential uh, for our survival. Uh, I did find an interesting quote from Kelly Mulville. You may know the rege regenerative uh, vineyard consultant who is saying that um, rebuilding the soil even slightly can boost its ability to hold water by 18,000 gallons per acre. And uh, by doing so, the flood risk uh, is reduced and also the need for irrigation, of course. And according to her math, that could save 10.8 uh, trillion gallons of water per year in California alone, and at the same time, sequester 3.5 metric tons of carbon per acre. So if we applied these practices to the 18 million acres of vineyard worldwide, we could potentially sequester enough carbon to offset the entire fossil fuel emission of the industry supply chain. That's a good stat. That's a good stat. Um, so, um, we recently ran a, through my other business, Innovation Forum, a sustainable future food conference. And to your point, Nicole, there was a particularly bad drought uh, somewhere in the US, in the Midwest somewhere. And the only farmer who didn't have enormous drought problems were the, was the one who was using regenerative principles at a mass scale. And, he, and his soil held on to moisture while everybody else dried out and lost their crop. And that was over a, a, a large scale farm. So that was a really interesting example that it's not just for romantic little vineyards. You can actually do it at scale and it makes a difference. It can save your business from bankruptcy. So it's a good example. I have more homework for everybody. If you haven't watched that movie, Kiss the Ground, the documentary, I think it spells out so well how the earth um, can provide really large scale sustainable solutions if we manage it properly. Yeah, it's a good one. Woody Harrelson, always, always good watching isn't he um Stephen Cronk was asking you Nicole if you can share that stat is there a source a link for your the last thing if you can put that in the chat uh Luke Douglas home you asked a question but I didn't understand quite what you meant so if you could clarify that would be great a couple of questions coming in here uh I'm just going to put them to our panel we've done the spraying one um Luke once you clarify I'll put your question uh Kate Gavron asks how useful is wind, wind in the vineyard for suppressing fungal infections or pest control? Very um, good question. If you go to Chile or Bandol, they'll tell you uh, pretty damn useful, <laughs> from what I understand. Alistair, yeah. thoughts? Um, yeah, there's a definition between wind and a breeze. I think wind can be quite problematic, um, depending <laughs> on the degree of exposure. A breeze, on the other hand, certainly in the UK, where we're damp, warmish, well, sometimes warm climate, um, a breeze can be really beneficial. And we just see it, I don't have any stats on it, but just anecdotally going out, you know, working in a lot of different vineyards. Those that have, are slightly more exposed and have a breeze coming through them certainly have much lower disease pressure. But we had one, one producer, client of ours last year, who's got 20 hectares that are, they're, they're conventional, um, if you can call it that, and they didn't have to spray once. And that's because they have a breeze coming through their vineyard. Um, and crop was great harvest as expected um no detriment and all thanks to the breeze so i think it's an underrated natural resource mm -hmm. and the hey, 
Yes. Yeah, in a moment, just one moment, Charles. Obvious question for Alistair. When does a breeze become wind? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't actually know the uh, scientific definition. We'll have to make one up, I guess. Well, I mean, it's kind of helpful it's if you to site a vineyard somewhere, isn't it, to know what that is. Charles, sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, I think um, we're touching a point here that's also very important, and that's uh, canopy management. Um, it's not so much the breeze or the wind that's important, it's the way we expose uh, the vines uh, to it uh, so that it can benefit, of course, from uh, photosynthesis. It can also benefit from um, the positive drying effects of the breeze. That's extremely important, especially uh, when fighting uh, fungal diseases. And fungal diseases is the last area where it's been really difficult not to spray. Um, at Filipina, for instance, we're not use, we've not been using herbicides for uh, 25 years now. We've not been using insecticides for even more than that, but we're still using fungicides. We're now using only uh, organically certified fungicides, but they're still fungicides. Copper is a bad fungicide, but we're forced to use it. Uh, one way we can use a lot less of that, uh, while we look for other solutions, is um, um, by exposing the canopy to the air, to the breeze. And that's working very well. It's working excellently against botrytis. Uh, we're now down to not using anything against botrytis because the breeze alone is enough to uh, dry up the grapes. And if there's a little botrytis, well, we can live with it. We can sort out the grapes and live with it. Absolutely. I mentioned Bandol. If you go and stand in Bandol vineyards with the vineyard managers, which I've done many times, they are obsessed with the wind direction of the breeze. It's absolutely fascinating to see, you know, because they deal with the Sirocco and the Mistral, and you get to see exactly how they're always positioning rows of vines to take the right advantage of the breeze. It's sort of fundamental in, in some of the vineyards. Alistair? Yeah, ju ju just to add to that point, um, obviously we, we are involved in establishing vineyards, and one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to, which I don't necessarily see, necessarily see elsewhere in the world, is windbreaks or shelter beds and you can use those to um, manipulate if you like the microclimate within a vineyard and deflect wind create a breeze and at the same time you're actually increasing um, species biodiversity within the vineyard you're creating wildlife corridors you're creating a softer visual impact on the landscape etc so I think again I think you know using using what nature is giving us in terms of other plant species to help manipulate microclimate um, within a vineyard environment is something that probably needs a bit more attention than it has been given today in terms of you know, climate change mitigation within a viticultural environment. That is very interesting. That's almost an entire conference right there, isn't it, Alistair? We'll, we'll put that one in the back pocket for now. Uh, Nicole, you wanted to come in on this point and then we're, we're going to move on. Nicole. Uh, yeah, just briefly, uh, obviously, in the south of France, everyone talks about the Mistral, but it's quite fascinating for me as a New Yorker that was a, transplanted here uh, when I met my husband. I actually learned so much about wind because they have they have 21 different winds here. They all have different names and they all find like wind spotting a big activity, which which I found very, very charming in a kind of uh, year in Provence kind of way, um, very folkloric, but actually it serves its purpose and it's a bit like Eskimos with all those names for snow. Uh, I think it's it's so enrooted in this, this culture and we have, uh, this is a ninth century vineyard and 
interestingly, not just the vineyard, but actually the house itself was, the site was, in our opinion, set specifically to be on the side of the hill that is protected from the Mistral and the walls are, you know, a meter thick and all of that. And everything has been done to manage wind as one of the most important resources, as well as water, because up here at the top of the mountain, you're completely isolated and you're you're completely dependent on the local springs and, and water management is uh, inherent to the history of the property. So we took that on board initially uh, from, the, from the get go, we put in a bamboo forest to filter the waters from the effluents from the winery, et cetera. And so uh, I think sort of being forced back into that mindset uh, is is very helpful for all of us now because there is so much local know-how in any region that's growing grapes probably been around for a long time. Thank you. A couple of technical questions for you, Chris, coming in here. So Luke's question was, um, who's leading research into the relative environmental harms of different pesticides? Um, <laughs> we only have the rest of the session to discuss that. You could take the whole day, couldn't you, Chris? Mm, as far as I know, I mean, Cornell at the University have done a lot. Uh, but uh, in the UK, it's University of Hertfordshire. Uh, but um, the chaps we're working with are a computer company called Ecoclimasol, who have a uh, system called Etofi. It's available in France, Nicole. Uh, so you can, uh, if you, and Charles, uh, you can um, sign up to their services and get an environmental risk factor for all your pesticide, well, all the plant protection product applications. I know that uh, some organic growers and the biodynamic growers will use uh, uh, alternative um, substances which aren't, yet, I mean, which aren't classified. But in France, uh, this, system, this system exists. Uh, Alistair and I are trying to find ways of sort of um, you know, bring this to the, a wider audience in the UK. Thank you. Um, and also another one for you, Chris, from Mike, Mike Nolden. Could you clarify if the carbon emissions from the diesel in the vineyards here, presumably meaning the UK, and the steel posts are worse than the packaging and the shipping of wine? Or were you just talking about vineyard emissions when you said they were the biggest emitters? Yeah, just vineyard emissions. Okay. I, we found that 70% of our member vineyards were actually carbon negative, were uh, you know, actually sequestered more carbon than they and they released. Um, and a lot of that was to do with the adjoining land and the, you know, the, the, the carbon uh, storage within the soil and so on. Yeah, uh, I have to ask you about the 30%. <laughs> what, why are they not? <laughs> it, it's, as I say, the big difference was the age of the posts, um, you know, because new vineyards, you know, we have to take their posts into consideration and the metal posts and metal posts have a carbon footprint. And uh, also the surrounding area, you know, how much woodland and, and hedgerow and non-productive uh, fields they have surrounding their vineyards. That, that, those were the main difference between the, um, between the carbon negative and carbon positive vineyards. Wineries is a different thing, okay? Wineries, uh, I mean, our statistics are not as reliable as they will be next year, but we found that 70% of the winery carbon footprint was the glass in bottles. And uh, then of course the electricity, uh, mostly used for lighting and things like that. 
Um, I mean, I've got to say, I'm not anti-wine in glass bottles. Uh, I think for some styles and, you know, it's a luxury product, so uh, it's important to present it well. I'm, but I'd like to see a way, uh, I'd like to see a switch away from the use of, of uh, petrol, you know, of, of, of carbon intensive fuels in the production of bottles. I think that's, you know, if we can uh, start to manufacture our glass using renewable energy, that would make an enormous difference to carbon footprint. Uh, yeah. I now, just uh, just recorded a podcast with uh, Concha Toro, who mm. become a B Corp, the world's biggest wine B Corp, they say, and they were talking about how they've got a glass man bottle manufacturer in Chile to work entirely off renewable energy. And we're having a, a session tomorrow with Nick Kirk from British Glass, who's the technical director, who says that's entirely possible, and there's some really interesting stuff underway. So if you want to find out about glass. Round about this time tomorrow at our packaging event, we'll be talking about that with Nick Kirk and what's possible. We had a really interesting preparation call chat about green hydrogen and what the possibilities are are there. But also there's a responsibility for the wine industry to send some market signals to the glass industry to try and make sure they can invest. So it's a two-way street. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted, Chris. Please continue. No, no, I mean, uh, as I say, uh, Diageo are using a glass manufacturer in Northern Ireland that works entirely off uh, renewable energy. So, you know, it's, it's not at all, it's, it's not impossible at all. And I think, I think that's certainly the way forward uh, for us. Uh, I also found that, or we also found, according to our statistics, that the uh, after, well, uh, in our industry, because we're a sparkling wine industry, everybody uses glass, but... Um, in uh, this, this, the most important factor of variation within our industry uh, was uh, the was was the capture of uh, electricity through solar panels, and uh, you know we would in, certainly encourage our members to have solar panels on their roofs because uh, not just the the use of electricity for uh, operations within the winery, but of course. They sell it back into the grid, and uh, that really, really reduced the carbon footprint of our members. And for me, it's you know, climate change mitigation is about carbon footprint. If you're not measuring your carbon footprint, um, you know, uh, it's difficult to you know, you're not really tackling it rationally. On that point, before I bring Alistair in, uh, Chris, very briefly, carbon capture from fermentation, bit of a pointless gimmick or a useful show of leadership. 17% we found of, well, let's, let's say firstly, of uh, most of the vineyards of which we got a carbon footprint, uh, the, the, um, you know, that carbon footprint, if you like, was greatly used up as due to the release of carbon dioxide uh, at fermentation. So if you like, the grapes come into the winery with a... Uh, a carbon uh, credit, okay, and that's counted uh, towards the carbon footprint of the winery. And uh, that, unless any, um, un un unless any measures to re reuse, recycle, or even capture that carbon uh, is put in place by the winery, uh, then it contributes to about between 15 and 20% of their, of their carbon footprint. And that carbon credit, if you like, is lost, which is a shame. 
But you, according to the CEO of Montrose, Hervé Bellon, you can capture this stuff pretty pretty cheaply and turn it into potassium bicarbonate. The problem then, as um, the folks at Chateau smith have also said, is what do you do with it? <laughs> you get these big sacks of captured CO2. This, it's not easy to get rid of them or to make sure that they might stay it's not what they do with it. It's just because it's, a, it's, a, it's just a mineral. You can put it on the soil. It does, it's, no, it's, it's inert. The problem is how do you generate the potassium carbonate in the first place? And that's quite a heat intensive, uh, that's quite a heat intensive uh, synthesis. So uh, unless you can find renewable, unless you can do that with renewable energy, uh, you're actually you know, using fossil fuels to generate something that's going to capture carbon dioxide. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, interesting. There's a, I just posted a podcast I did with Hervé about that. I'm not sure we got into the energy footprint. I mean, they talked about a mobile unit that would turn up and do it, but perhaps there is fossil fuels involved. Very interesting. Alistair, you wanted to come in. Charles, in a minute, I want to ask you about um, bottle weight as a champagne producer uh, and, uh, uh, and also um, about your, your views on, on, uh, on carbon capture elsewhere. So Alistair, uh, over to you initially. Yeah, just really quickly, just to pick up on a couple of points about um, energy use in wine production. Um, I issued a study in 2014 that looked at energy use in the English wine production sector, and we found that perhaps unsurprisingly, the actual production process used more energy than, than the viticulture side of things. Um, but just some interesting sort of highlights that came out of that. 22% um, of energy uh, actually just came from light use, came from lighting in a winery. Um, we found that across the UK, which is a tiny sector, the range in energy consumption per bottle ranged from 0.04 kilowatts per litre uh, of wine to 2.065 kilowatts per litre. That's 50 times difference. And again, it comes back to my earlier point. There is evidence out there that with really good wine redesign, with energy efficiency integrated into a green building design, for example, um, with the ability to monitor and manage energy use, there is a huge opportunity to decrease energy consumption within the wine production process. And again, it comes back to developing those case studies, education and learning. And I think there's a really good opportunity to use good architecture, quite frankly, in the modern age. We can have carbon neutral um, buildings with zero footprint. You know, there's an opportunity to do this. But the focus is very much on the vineyard. And I think we do need to look at the whole supply chain, the vineyard, the winery, the ability for staff to come in and have electric charging points, bikes, whatever it might be, you know, where your bottles come from, what your supply chain is doing. Somehow this all needs to be linked up. Um, and I think it's something that I know Chris is involved in, in the sustainability scheme in the UK. And I think it's something that others can, can focus on more. Very well said. We had a very interesting chat the other week with Carlos Mondavi about his new electric tractor and the potential for that uh, to do other things as well in terms of assessing uh, other areas of the vineyard. But as you say, the winery uh, gets perhaps a bit less attention. Charles, what are your views on this? And, and of course, I imagine you get asked questions around how low can you go on bottle weight for, for champagne, bearing in mind the, the atmospheric pressure challenge. Charles. Well, first of all, if I may crack a little joke um, in champagne and perhaps uh, in sparkling wine in, in uh, England, also, we know about sequestering carbon inside bottles, at least for a while. Um, it's a joke and not a joke at the same time. I think we need to have a look at the global picture. Um, if we ferment wine, 
we will create carbon dioxide through fermentation. It's natural. I don't think that's something we should try and control and fight or find gimmicks to uh, capture the carbon uh, first produced. Um, if we also look at the global picture in the way energy, electricity is produced, um, we have to be a little bit careful about what we say. If glassmakers make bottles with electricity, um, instead of burning fossil fuels directly into their ovens, they'll be buying electricity that's partly made from fossil fuels. And even though through the same network, um, they do buy supposedly um, ecologically produced uh, electricity um, from windmills or other ways, um, they're still participating in the consumption of energy globally. So we need to be a little bit careful with that, uh, with what we say. Uh, if anyone says I'm using an electric tractor, uh, I don't know what an electric tractor is. An electric tractor is something with batteries that have to be recharged. Uh, they have to be recharged with electricity and that electricity has to be produced and it has to be produced and is taken from the network and part of the electricity in the network is from fossil fuels. So it's all part of the, uh, of the global picture. Uh, saving energy, saving fossil fuels is something global, not local. Having said that, there are many things we can do. And obviously there are things we can do about the weight of our bottles. Yes, of course, we've been working on that. Uh, the weight of a bottle of champagne, I don't know the exact figures, but it, it's about 25 to 30% less than it was 30 years ago. And uh, we can probably continue diminishing uh, the weight of these bottles provided uh, we maintain and enhance their strength to prevent breakage, obviously. Um, this is a, probably a silly question, but because of the nature of champagne bottles, is there a perceived higher value to them? Do they get higher recycling rates than standard bottles? Just because, you know, sometimes you hold a nice empty bottle of champagne, you think it's I, almost I, nice I, to throw away, right? It's a kind of, they can be beautiful things compared I, to... I, I don't know the figures, but um, if I'm making myself the advocate of glass makers, um, glass is one of the most recyclable matters uh, in the whole consumption chain. And from that point of view, it saves energy and, and it's, um, it, it's sustainable. Glass is very sustainable if it's recycled. But most of the glass is recycled because the cheapest raw material for glass makers is recycling glass. Yeah. Well, we'll be hearing a lot more about glass tomorrow, as mentioned. Uh, Chris, did you want to comment briefly on glass? We're, we're just about to finish. So, um, but go That's ahead. A very quick point. I think it's probably difference in, Fra in, in France. But in England, there's a, <coughs> the energy market is uh, liberalised, if you like. We insist that our growers use uh, energy sources from renewable energy rather than from hydrocarbons. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, we have different suppliers that offer different levels of renewable energy and uh, you know that's for me is a, is a way is certainly a way forward um, is for the consumer to to ensure that their energy does not come from coal or other hydrocarbons. And I think talking to Carlo Mondavi, I'll be doing a podcast with him about this, so I will ask him about this, Charles. But I'm pretty sure the the Monarch tractor is designed so that you can have installed solar and you can charge it over you can charge it overnight with perhaps 
an on-site battery that's then been charged up with solar yeah, during the day. I, I prefer that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't, given his passion for sustainability, I'm sure he'd have thought about that. <laughs> uh, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm pretty sure they designed it so it's not going to be, you know, f powered by dirty coal because that was always the criticism of, you know, the first round of electric vehicles, wasn't it? You know, um, so look, we're out of time, um, but this was a fantastic session. Thank you all. I'm going to ask Nicole to close. I haven't prepped you for this, Nicole, but what is the one thing, Nicole, you would like our viewers of this to do after this session to help propagate the idea of leadership on climate change? One thing, Nicole. You seem like someone who responds well to under pressure. So I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'd like to uh, help everybody who talks to clients really be um, forensic in terms of thinking about those client groups, because you have the people who don't know. And if they did know, they might do something. So we have to educate them. We have the ones who do know but don't care or care about other things more. And then I think the first place to start is going to be on those people who think they know, think they care, but are misguided or uninformed about what to do with their uh, desire to care. So I'm sure we all have that friend who sits there looking you straight in the eye while they are having their little vegan salad and, and trying to do all these great things for all these charities. And they're telling you all this while they're chugging some super commercial brand of, of rosé or something that we all know is just part of the problem and not part of the solution. So at least at least starting with the people who are open to understanding the, the role of this and giving them the education that they need. And that pressure coming from the consumer onto the politician and back onto the industry is going to be the only way to create that virtual cycle, the uh, virtuous cycle that we all need. Great. Thank you. A great point to finish on. Um, and just a reminder, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable is designed to, to do exactly this in part. So please do consider joining. Um, and my pitch for that ends here, as this session does too. Thank you so much, Chris Foss, Nicole Rone, Charles Philipponet. I love your champagne, by the way. Much as I love Nicole's wines, wonderful. Keep, keep up the great work. Uh, and thank you again to the panel. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.